Aliens and flying saucers. Hey, welcome to the 37th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, a former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to comics to whatever I'm thinking of. And today we bring in our first international guest, the UK writer Danny Wallace, whose new book, F You Very Much, Understanding the Culture of Rudeness and What We Can Do About It, was just released in the United States. Danny's an absolutely fascinating guy, a former BBC producer, the voice of a character in Assassin's Creed, a presenter in the National Lottery, the author of Yes Man, the book-turned-Jim Carrey film, and today I really wanted to understand how a rude hot dog waitress led to one of my favorite books of the year. If that sounds weird, it totally is, and it's right now on Two Writers Slinging Yang. So you are you're the author of F You Very Much, Understanding the Culture of Rudeness and What We Can Do About It. What I really love, so I love this book, and <laughs> I'm not just saying that in the way when you promote a book, oftentimes people tell you they love the book, and then they <laughs> read straight off the, the press release, and you know they didn't even read the damn book. I love this book. And what I love about it is it feels like you took a really small idea and made it big. Do you know what I mean? Like you, it's not like you're mm. like, I'm going to write a biography of David Beckham. You're like, I'm going to write a book <laughs> about understanding rudeness and I'm really going to expand it. And that seems like a really hard thing to do. No. Well, do you know, it, it kind of happened organically because, um, because it is about, it started with a very, very, very small thing, which was hot dog. my, yeah, with a hot dog, you know, um, it was kind of my reaction to being served in a really, really rude way by a really, really rude woman in front of people in a sort of humiliating way and not knowing what to do in response. And, and all I'd wanted was a hot dog. Um, I went to this place that sold hot dogs. I wanted a hot dog. My son wanted a hot dog. I bought hot dogs before, Jeff. I know how it works. You go to the hot dog person and you say, I'd like a hot dog and you give them the money and that's that. And within minutes, um, it should have been sorted. And yet when I walked into this place, it was as if I kicked the door down and shouted obscenities at the woman because she was already kind of angry at me. And remember, the only reason she got up that morning was to make hot dogs for people like me. Yeah. Um, and so when this hot dog was not forthcoming, um, and when I waited and waited, patiently waited and politely went in and, and kind of did everything I could to ask where the hot dog was in a very nice way, putting my hands up, raising my eyebrows, making my voice lilt, kind of blaming it on my child as well, just saying, I'm just kind of wondering where my kid's hot dog is. Um, when I just got rudeness back, it was like something exploded in my brain. Um, and to cut a long story very short, I mean, as you know, uh, I ended up being thrown out of a diner um, after waiting an hour and a minute for a hot dog I never got. Um, <laughs> and when, when someone is that rude to you, um, when it could have been so easy to be nice, um, it's very, very confusing. It's why people 
uh, in the moment, usually can't think of something witty to say to someone who's been rude to them. It's not until they're halfway down the street they come up with something that would be perfect. Um, you find yourself confused and sort of slightly befuddled. And I was looking at my own reaction to this, probably through as well the prism of my son's eyes and, and, and seeing that my little boy had seen two grown-ups who, you know, should have been able to work things out, being quite rude and angry um, at each other, and then seeing his dad thrown out of the diner. Um, I, I just thought, what happened there between me and a stranger? And how could it have gone better? And what did she do wrong? And what did I do wrong if I did something wrong? And, and how could we do things right in the future? Because it stayed with me for a couple of days, to the point where I was doing insane things. I couldn't stop talking about it. So I'd just be like, out of nowhere, I would just suddenly say, unbelievable, that woman, or she was unbelievable, or that behavior was unbelievable. And I also found myself driving past that, that diner. And even though there was no one in it, and it was completely dark, I found myself flipping it off with my middle finger, and just a grown man making rude gestures at a building. And I thought, there's something going on here that I don't like. And uh, and actually, I think the world could be better. And so I thought, almost like that JFK movie, I'm going to analyze this one tiny moment from as many different angles as possible. So that's what I That's did. amazing. I love that. <laughs> and, and when, like, I'm actually fascinated because I, uh, I have this thing, and I'm sure you do too, probably. Like, you're always, like, things just hit you. Like, they go from, it goes from a glass of milk sitting on your dresser to, you know, it'd be a really good book to write about the process of milk, you know, this glass of milk from cow to milk and how, like, yeah. is there a moment or a sort of process for you when you're like that, where it goes from, God, I'm fucking pissed off at this waitress over a stupid hot dog to this is my next book. I'm going to write this. Yeah, it does. It's, it's when you have an idea that for me, it's a couple of things. One is, I never worry about the ending of a book. I always worry about the beginning. The beginning has to be strong enough to take you to the end. And I trust myself that I'll be able to kind of get to the end. So it's like jumping into a swimming pool, um, but not knowing kind of what side of the pool you're going to end up on. But you know you're going to get to the side. You just have to kind of swim around in the idea and, and, and kind of work it out. And the other thing that it has to have is it almost has to be an idea that's strong enough that when you consider it, you get excited and it's almost like a spider diagram kind of in front of your head, your forehead. It's almost like all these different ways it could go, little arrows shooting off left, right, and center. Lots of this could happen and that might happen and maybe I'll find this out. So when it's like an, like fireworks almost, when it's like an explosion of uh, different things and you're not sure which way to look, that's when you kind of think maybe maybe you're onto something. And, um, you know, I, I've had that a few times with, with, with ideas that I feel are quite strong. And with rudeness, um, I just sort of realized that there is so much of it and that when I, the more I thought about it, the more I've kind of been writing about it for years without really realizing. So I thought this will be my chance to kind of get something off my chest. My favorite, I think my favorite, um, a lot of things in this book I really like. My, my favorite passage or my favorite few sentences, you write, um, imagine a scientist arriving at a TV studio in order to announce a cure for all known diseases. I'm absolutely certain that as they got their notes together and prepared for the most important speech of their life, they'd still take a moment to tell the bloke who took their, their jacket what, what an absolute tit their taxi driver was. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I honestly so... think that's true. 
I agree with you. And so, <laughs> I mean, you do something really interesting here, which is you, you, I mean, it's what you do with a book, but you, you take these really interesting personal anecdotes and sort of life anecdotes and you merge them with these statistics and these sort of, uh, these studies that really sort of frame rudeness in the world. Um, do you actually sort of, do you feel like you walk away from it with an understanding of why we're such a bunch of assholes to each other? Yeah, I do. I think I learn a lot. And, and the thing is that this book could have been quite a silly book. Could have been, um, could have just been one of those books where someone sounds off about stuff and says, don't you just hate it when people don't line up properly or take too long right. to order their coffees or whatever. Um, but the more I realized I cared deeply about it and the, the more stories I realized I had from my own life. And the more stories I was getting kind of from other people who, who, who seem to care quite passionately about it as well, because I think we all do. That's why I said that thing about the scientists. No matter, no matter what's going on in our life, no matter what, um, uh, high thoughts we have or, 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 or bigger things on our mind, we will always care about those little human stories, those moments where someone's disrespected us or where we just need to offload. And what I wasn't prepared for was kind of how dark um, some of the book could get in terms of the things I was discovering about how damaging rudeness is and uh, the effects it has on our creativity, on our relationships with each other, um, on our ability to be good friends or fathers or mothers or whatever, um, how well we can do our job. And it's fine if your job is, you know, you're a writer, um, you know, someone's rude to you, you have a bit of a bad day and you, you kind of crack on with life. But if you're, say, a surgeon about to undertake <laughs> incredibly complex, you know, procedures on, say, an infant um, and someone's been rude to you, um, the terrifying thing is you, you will become 50% less effective at your job. So lives start to become at risk. And that was a real turning point for me when I, when I discovered that. And I sort of started to see the world in a different way and uh, interactions as well. I hope I've become more understanding because of it, but I think actually I've probably become a little angrier and more cynical because of it. So you like, you don't walk away from this experience feeling, you know, like I was, I remember when I was a kid and my dad used to say, you never know what someone is going through. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? When someone's in a bad mood or someone's and like, do you walk away from the hot dog woman who clearly was a complete and total bitch to you about this hot dog, <laughs> but do you yeah. walk away from her and think maybe her dad died? You know what I mean? Maybe she just found yeah, out she yeah. has cancer, maybe so-and-so. And is that a fair excuse for rudeness? Um, I think we do have to give each other um, a little bit of leeway. I think we're, we're at a point in time where – the world is getting ruder. The world does feel ruder. And that's not like a generational thing. It's not me suddenly being a bit older and going, oh, young people, because I'm talking about everybody. Mm -hmm. um, I'm talking about what spills out of our phones. I'm talking about the current trends in television programming, uh, from reality TV to news debates. I'm talking about politicians. Um I'm talking about this narrowing, this sort of this, this coarsening in, in society where, where everyone has to, A, have an opinion and B, 
it's somehow not enough to have an opinion. They have to share it with everybody. And these opinions have to be short and punchy. And everyone's got to have a hot take. Everyone's got to be controversial. Everyone's got to seem really sure of themselves. And the problem is that a real... Like, say when someone's trying to be really funny, often a shortcut to being funny is for people who aren't, like, properly funny. They think that just being cynical is enough. Just being disparaging mm -hmm. is being enough. Just slating something is enough. Um, and it's, it's kind of not. And we're at a point in society where there are too many shortcuts being taken. And um, it's shortcuts to look better, shortcuts to look more intelligent, shortcuts to look funnier, um, and uh, shortcuts to power. Um, and really, it's just making more and more people feel bad. Um, so I sort of understand that we're at this point where this is happening. And, and so I take that into consideration. And I also understand that possibly I didn't consider the hot dog lady's feelings enough at the time. I, I was just insulted because as far as I was concerned, I was being blindsided by rudeness that was coming out of nowhere. And in that moment, it's difficult to, to look at it from the other person's point of view because you want to just go, you know, fuck you. How dare you treat me like this? Because you're disrespecting me and I now need to claw some respect back. Um, so much of, um, our day to day life is built on the respect that we think we deserve from other people and the respect that we kind of, we give them. And when it's kind of robbed from us, we want our, we want our revenge. I mean, I've gone quite far. I've written a whole book as revenge for this lady. Right. Um, which is not something, uh, you know, uh, I would recommend. It's very time consuming. <laughs> but, um, I should probably have, like, like probably the, the, you know, when someone cuts you off in traffic, sure. um, immediately you're furious, like within, within a second or two. And I've noticed that driving around America, um, I, I would get angrier faster because in America, um, people I've noticed tend, not to look at each other in the cars. They, they sort of take in the other car, but not the people inside. And although every now and again, they might say thank you if you let them in at traffic. It's it certainly when I, I lived in LA for a year and, and it, that seemed to be the exception. Um, in Britain, something has happened organically. Um, I believe it's still kind of illegal. And yet every driver over the last 10, 15 years has started to do it. Um, and that is, when someone cuts in front of you um, and you immediately go to anger, you immediately think they're being rude, they're being disrespectful, they don't care about you, they've cut you off, they're a horrible person, uh, and they, 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 they think nothing of you. In those few seconds when you're having that, that kind of that swell of anger inside you, that's completely natural. Mm. But then the person in front of you will, for just a couple of seconds, just flash their hazard lights. So you get that blink, 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 blink of the orange lights. And in that moment, all your anger dissipates because that means either I'm really sorry or it means thank you. And it's just that little bit of human connection between two metal boxes um, that reminds you that there's a person in there and maybe they've made a mistake. They didn't mean to cut in. Maybe they didn't know the lay of the land. Maybe they're not from around here. And they, they didn't know how the roads in this area worked. Um, maybe they're just really, you know, sorry. Um, uh, and in that moment, all road rage dissipates, just fades away because you realize they're an all right person. Um, 
So all of this human connection just works on, on that level. When you can't have eye contact with someone, um, you're much more likely to get angry when you can't see in their eyes what's going on, when you can't understand them. So I suppose because I only talked to the hot dog lady for the, for the amount of time I did and we didn't really get onto her family life, then I definitely made some assumptions about her. Um, but I do try in the book to, to kind of see it from her point of view and, and to maybe try and understand why she may have thought I was a dick that day, even though all I wanted, Jeff, was a simple hot dog. Did you give her a book? <laughs> uh, well, well, um, I'm pretty sure by now she is aware of the book. I think that there is, there's little chance that she won't have heard about it and she won't have put two and two together and worked out that it's her. I do everything I can in the book to protect her. Um, I don't, um, it, it happens in a British place, but I don't even say which nation in Britain it is. Uh-huh. Um, but she knows. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, and I hope she's, uh, I hope she's okay with it. You know, it's funny. My, um, my first book came out about a decade ago. And when I was a kid, yeah, I had a bully named John Deagle who used to, uh, punch me. Yeah. And, you know, I was like in middle school and years later I was writing a book about that year, 1986. And I wrote a book about that year. And on the first page of the book, I wrote about how 1986 was one of the worst years of my life because of this and that. And a skull bully named John Deagle used to punch me when I get down the hall. <laughs> and I was thinking, there is no greater revenge of the nerd story than calling out a bully <laughs> in a book. You know, and like, here we are. Yeah. You're in England. I'm in L.A. And we're talking about the, the hot dog lady and her rudeness. Yeah. So you win. <laughs> you didn't get the hot dog, but you win. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. There's a, what I love about um, uh, when we talk about people from school is it's absolutely impossible to complete a sentence without using the person's full name. So you couldn't have said to me just then, back in 1986, there was a kid called John who used to bully me. <laughs> you had to say John Deagle, because that's exactly, that's just how we talked back then. Every name had to be said in full. Yeah. Um, so, you know, well, hopefully, uh, John Deagle, um, you know, I hope he's mended his ways. We're actually friends he is now. now we became pastor. friends. Yeah. Oh, you are? Yeah, oh, we became good. friends. So there you go. Time heals wounds. Oh, well, I'm good. Yeah. Um, Time heals wounds. But, you, um, you know, I still prefer you to him. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Your, um, your introduction to this book is, um, I love. I mean, I love. And uh, <laughs> when I started reading the book, I um, actually was reading it, and I turned to my wife, and I was like, you got to hear this. I just want to read the first two paragraphs. You wrote, in 2015, sure. after 27-year-old Omar Hussein left his job at a Morrison supermarket in the uh, Bucking... Buckinghamshire and fled to the United Kingdom to join the radical terrorists. Oh, excuse me, and fled the United Kingdom to join the radical terrorist jihadist group ISIS. He was extraordinarily disappointed to find out how rude they all were. We all get annoyed at our colleagues from time to time, but for Omar Hussein, the everyday rudeness displayed by those simultaneously plotting to bring down the very tenets of Western civilization was a step too far. I think that's as good mm. an intro to paragraphs as I've ever read in a book. And I wonder. Oh. I really do. I really do. I think it's so ridiculously engaging. Um, and I wonder, A, how did you even find that out? And when you did find it out, like, were you looking for an example? Did you just know about this? And did you know when you heard it, I'm going to, that's going to, that, that's my opening to this book. I think I'd, I'd heard about Omar um, when it had happened. 
Um, and I, I'd filed it away at the back of my head as, as a, a little bit of ridiculousness. Like, like I was just thinking at the time I was thinking, well, well, what did you expect? <laughs> um, you know, you, you fled Britain, you gave up your job, you, you went to the desert, you rocked up, um, and an ISIS turned out to be, um, well, a little bit rude. Now, most of us would expect ISIS to right. be far, far worse. It wasn't like the, it wasn't the beheadings. It wasn't the, uh, the bombings that, that bothered Omar. It was the fact that sometimes they would, uh, they, they would take his phone off charge, uh, so that they could charge their phones. And <laughs> I just remember, I just remember loving, um, the kind of, the almost sitcom-esque, um, Basil Fawlty-like, uh, way that he would get annoyed at pretty much the worst people in the world for doing things that, you know, right. normal people do, like flatmates do, roommates do. Um, uh, so I filed it away and he, ju I just remembered him when I was thinking about, um, uh, uh, almost people overreacting. I think, you know, if anything, he was kind of uh, underreacting. There, there, there are many other things that he could have got, <laughs> you know, taken issue with with ISIS. But it just seemed to me to be a perfect example of people having very, very different standards of behavior, and yet certain things will annoy us all. There are certain things that will anger the old woman on the train in the same way that it will, uh, it will anger the, uh, the, uh, the wannabe jihadist. I just think it's funny. I can picture this guy being like, look, I know we got to go out and behead <laughs> 17 infidels, but can you put the toothpaste away, please? Yeah. Jesus Christ. Exactly. It's like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, it would be great as a reality show, kind of like at home with ISIS. <laughs> um, you know, and they all come in kind of bloodied and muddied um and they've got to get the dinner ready but they won't sit down in time and poor omar's got to you know he's on deadline for the for the dinner so it's just a it's just the kind of uh that 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 sort of well what would it be it's just treating this madness in such a suburban and boring way right um that um it's nice to know that they're not happy yeah yeah right <laughs> it's good to know they're rude um you, um, yeah. my favorite chapter in your book, and I, I gotta think it's your, uh, I always use the term like your money chapter is, is the troll, which <laughs> is so good. And oh, right. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. And I, um, it's funny because I read it on the same day. So I, I, every now and then I tweet things poorly and I was talking with my son the other day and we have a little dog, a cockapoo named Norma. And I said to my son, how old, you, how old, you, how old your son? my son's 11 and my dog is nine. So, uh, right. I said to my son. We have, we do a lot of hypotheticals. And I said, if, uh, if you knew Trump could no longer be president, but the dog had to die, what would you do? And Oof. he goes, yeah, I'd probably kill the dog. And I was like, I was like, me too. But we were just <laughs> kidding, right? So I, but I yeah. tweeted out the joke on Twitter and it did not go well. And I had a couple oh, of people tweet back to me. Of course they're anonymous. Tweet back. I hope your son gets hit by a car. I hope you and your son die. Oh, Jesus. And. I was re I, that happened literally the same day I was reading your chapter, the troll, which involved a yeah. tweet you got who, and the guy wrote, you're the worst writer in history. And if I ever uh, meet you, I will punch your cunt face. And then hashtag Danny Wallace yeah. deserves AIDS. Um, yeah, now I'm not saying I disagree with any of that sentiment. You know, it's, I mean, he has a point, <laughs> he makes some good arguments. 
Um, but yeah, it's that the chapter is <laughs> so ridiculously good because you actually confront him. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I didn't even mean to. I explain that. What do you mean you didn't mean to? Well, you know, I'm, I'm heartened um, and yet disturbed by uh, what you were saying about kind of um, the response you had to that tweet. I, there are a lot of dicks out there. Yes. And there's, there are a lot of dicks with um, the power of uh, anonymity um, and the power that they're not looking you in the eye. That's the thing. They're not looking you in the eye when they say that thing, that horrible uh, thing about you and about your son. Just as this guy uh, couldn't look me in the eye when he said uh, all all that nonsense, um, and and they were all, it was all in block capitals as well, um, <laughs> which somehow added to the sort of uh, the the sense of uh, anger, obviously, but the sort of weird, jarring sense of violence it brought into my day, in that the day had been going so well. It was just a beautiful day. The sun was shining through the windows in London. The trees were swaying outside. Um, just kind of all the leaves just looked all just, you know, when the sun is really beautiful and the leaves just all these different shades of green, you never really take the time to notice. And my, my wife was sitting next to me and she was... Uh, Heavily pregnant at the time, so it was. It was a great, and it was Friday. It was great. Great, it was day. great, great day. And then I idly, yeah, it was great. And I checked Twitter, and that's when I, that's when uh, the day took a turn. Uh, and I, and I, I, I saw that message. And no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how grown up you are, when a stranger wishes ill upon you or your son in that way, mm -hmm. it's disturbing um, because. It's involving other people as well. Um, and it's very difficult for it not to bother you a little bit. And my wife could tell that I'd read something that bothered me, and she asked me about it, and I showed it to her. And she's a former publicist, and she, I wasn't expecting her to say anything, but she just went, I know that name, the name of the guy who had written this thing. And so she flipped open a laptop, and she went through an old document, and she found someone whose name matched. And it turned out, that that guy was a writer as well. Whoa. And in my career, um, I've I found that largely I don't get that much nonsense from strangers. And if I get something from a stranger, you know, I'll either distract them. If someone's really horrible on Twitter, the best thing you can do is, is confuse them. So I'll get something like really nasty and I'll just go, what did you have for your dinner tonight? You know, and That's they good. won't know how to respond to that. And usually they'll tell me what they have for dinner. And then I'll say, oh, that sounds lovely, and just be sort of positive. And they're so confused and disarmed by that little bit of distraction that they don't really know how to deal with it. Um, and with this guy, all I'd responded was, gosh, you know, you seem aggressive. And I'd given him an out. <laughs> right. And I was hoping that perhaps he might come back and say, I'm sorry, you know, it was a joke gone wrong or blah, blah, blah. But he didn't. And... um and I thought it was interesting that it was a writer, but I, I sort of looked at his picture and I put it away and I thought, just just leave it, you know? I can't believe this guy used his Cut name. To. I can't believe he used – that is so rare that he even used his real name. Yeah. No, I know. Because, you know, ordinarily, as you know, you'd get, you know, just a, an egg uh, avatar and uh, – Trump and lover 23. Numbers or whatever. A lot of Trump lover 23 out here. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But this guy did. And, and maybe he was drunk when he did. Who knows? You know, <laughs> God knows what he was doing. Anyway, a few months later, I'm in a pub in London, a great pub. It's um, beautiful, really kind of sort of Victorian, big stained glass windows, right in the center, but just off the main drag. 
and 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 it's nice. Um, and I'm with some people I haven't really known for very long. I think I just, I think I just met one of them that day. I just done some work with them. So not the kind of people you want to cause a fuss in front of. Is all I'm saying. Uh-huh. And then I turn around and I I look over and I see the guy. I recognise him. Steve. I see I see his face. Yeah. And, and it's the same face that was staring back at me from that, from that avatar that day, that horrible day, that Friday. And immediately I kind of bristle because I think, well, this is a moment. This is like a, this is like a little adventure of an afternoon that I wasn't expecting because <laughs> now I'm in control. Right. You know, I can, I've, I've got control of the situation because I know who he is and I know he knows who I am, but he doesn't know I know who he is. So I could do anything here. Um, this would be great. And then I sort of turn back and I see, oh God, I'm with these people. Um, this, this, you know, could be quite an awkward little moment. Um, and by the time I've kind of come to the conclusion that I'm not going to do anything, I'm going to let him walk away. I'm going to be the bigger man. I'm going to turn the other cheek and all that, all that nonsense. I look around and he's standing next to me, right next to me at the bar, almost like our hands, you know. Yeah just a hair's breadth apart. And for some reason, that infuriated me. Because I thought, you'll sit at home or wherever you were and you'll write nonsense to me, nonsense you know that will come straight into my house, right into my phone or my computer or my tablet, whatever. You'll send that, that poison into the air and you'll send those horrible things. And yet, you've got the balls to stand next to me in a bar and think you get away with it. Right. And so in that moment, I just turned to him and I, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I just went, Steve. And he turned to look at me and he's like, hello. And I go, hi. And he goes, and I can see like synapses are firing and he's thinking, how the far away, how does he know? And uh, he goes, uh, he reaches for something and he finds it and he goes, you're, 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 you're Pete's mate, aren't you? And I go, I am, I am Pete's mate. And to this day, Jeff, I don't know who Pete is. I don't know who he's talking about, <laughs> right. but I just, I just wanted to give him that little bit of rope, just a little bit of hope. And, uh, and uh, he goes, well, how, how did you know I was Steve? Uh, and I go, and I turned and sort of squared up to him and made myself a little bit bigger in that way that men can sometimes do. Um, and just said, because you said, you were going to punch my cunt face and I deserve AIDS. Bam. And in that moment, I just saw something explode behind his eyes. And, you know, he started to shrivel <laughs> and sort of, uh, you know, in my head, it would be like a flop sweat and it would all go wrong and he'd be going dizzy. Um, but I did two things. I just kept repeating his name and I kept repeating his horrible phrases. Um, so I just kept saying things like, where are you going to do it, Steve? Where are you going to punch my cunt face? Are you going to do it in here? Are you going to do it outside? Um, because I want him to realize that no longer was he that little avatar on my screen as I sit alone next to my heavily pregnant wife reading his abuse. Um, and I wanted him to have to take ownership of those words that he sent my way as well. Words that, when said out loud, have far more power and drama and impact than than perhaps he had even sort of anticipated when he'd sent them my way in the first place. And, you know, I was making him kind of take responsibility and eat those words. And I just kept asking him sincerely, 
when he was going to punch my cunt face and whether I deserved AIDS and whether he thought people in general deserved AIDS. And he got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And he didn't know that all this time behind my back, I had like my right hand was just shaking with adrenaline in that slightly pathetic way when you stand up to a bully. Yeah. Um, as far as he knew, I was completely in control um, and just kind of hammering him. And the people um, that I'd only just really met and worked with were loving it. Um, and in the end, when he tried to explain, you know, what he'd done, and he was trapped at the bar, by the way, because he'd ordered his uh, pints. And in Britain, you know, you order your pints, you can't leave. Yeah. You've got to wait till they arrive. When they finally arrived and he could uh, leave, he wanted to explain more. And I just said, take your pints and fuck off. And off he went, taking that opportunity. Um, and uh, it was one of those moments where it was quite out of character for me. My wife woke up at sort of three in the morning. Um, shaking with laughter, um, repeating that phrase over and over in her head because, uh, you know, it's, it's so not like me to do that in a pub. I'm quite an unaggressive person. Um, but also I think that there are those moments in life where, uh, you can grab a little bit of justice and just go, no, I'm not letting you get away with this. Um, this rudeness, I'm going to call you out on it, shine a spotlight on it and, uh, and make you responsible. And certainly it was, um, it's something I don't regret doing. I just want to say I'm looking at your author photo. I don't think you have a cunt face at all. I just want you to know that. <laughs> well, you know, ish, ish, a little bit in the wrong line. I mean, a little bit, but not not a big cunt face. <laughs> um, yeah. You will never have. Yeah. Not a generic one. Wait, I always think like, so I covered I covered uh, Major League Baseball here for a long time, and I always used to say. Yeah, I know, yeah. Athletes will struggle. Athletes struggle when they're done because you're never going to have a stadium of 50,000 people cheering your name. And I feel like you – yeah. We'll never have a more gangster moment than that moment in the bar. <laughs> like the rest of your life isn't really worth living anymore because you'll never have a moment like that again. That's the best moment ever. Well, it's, you know, if only you could have had one against uh, John in 1986, ah, um, great. perhaps you wouldn't now have to pretend to be his friend. Before we continue with Danny Wallace, a quick word from our sponsor. Hi, this is Jeff Perlman and I'm here with my wife, Catherine. Happy anniversary, Early. I got you a gift. You shouldn't have. Open it. Is it a necklace? Open it. Is it a new phone? Just to open it. Is it a pony? Freaking open it. Oh my God. It's a Marcus Dupree Boston Breakers jersey from 503 Sports. Actually, it's a New Orleans Breakers jersey. I love it. I knew you would because 503 Sports is all about throwback. We're talking USFL, we're talking World Football League, we're talking XFL, minor league baseball, minor league hockey, old school Portland State. Or put differently, if you're a man or woman who has long dreamed of owning a Marcus Dupree, New Orleans, or Portland Breakers jersey, well, dreams come true. The merchandise at 503 Sports is handcrafted and all very reasonably priced. So be like Catherine Perlman and go to 503-sports.com and type in coupon code YANG18 to get 10% off your first purchase. It's a really broad topic, you know, rudeness. Um, We've all got, I mean, both of us, we've gone through the, the sort of song and dance routine of trying to get a book deal and trying to convince a publisher that's not just a book, but that it's a book worth them spending money on to sell. And I wonder how, how hard was the actual process of getting a book deal for this? Was it very easy? Did it take you forever? Well, I've worked with the same um, editor for, um, I suppose, uh, about 12 years or so. Mm -hmm. And, um, and we, we sort of understand each other and we trust each other. And, uh, often it will be a case of 
going to him and sitting down and telling him a story. Um, and it's almost like trying to bring that, that spider diagram I was talking about earlier um, to life in, in, in that room. It's not saying, here's definitely how it will go. Here is definitely what I'll write about. It's saying, here's how it starts. This is the big moment. This is, this is the thing. It's the woman not selling me the hot dog. And it's, you know, and then explaining how you feel about it and having a discussion. So, so really it was as, it was kind of as, as hard and as simple as that. Um, just saying, um, I think the world's getting worse. This hot dog thing has happened to me. Um, you know, often, you know, I've, I've pitched lots of, um, TV things as well, like in America and so on. And very often, um, for a pitch to go well, it's, it's really a case of just bringing the subject to life through personal examples. Mm -hmm. So in the same way that, that I don't plot a book out by having like a map in front of me or loads of cards that say where I need to get to, um, it's, it's more a, a series of ideas that can complement each other and, um, uh, knock on from one another. And, and so long as you're confident enough that you will find your ending, you'll find your conclusion, you'll find, um, your moment of clarity, then, then I think it's fine to just jump in. Um, like, like I said earlier, jump in that swimming pool. Um, and, uh, and, and, and hope that, um, you find the most interesting side. So you don't have to write a proposal for him anymore. Do you, do you have to, like I'm generally doing, and I hate them with all my passion. Um, the 20 page double spaced proposal, why this book or sell break down a chapter. Yeah, blah, yeah. Blah, blah. Do you avoid that? Um, I'm lucky enough at this point to be able to, I've got, um, I've got, uh, a kind of a deal with, um, with, with Jake, um, that's, um, you know, uh, where, where we can decide together what the next books will be. Um, and with, you know, the stage I'm at right now, it, it, uh, it, it tends to work more on discussions and, and topics and keeping in touch. And, and, you know, I remember with, with rudeness, um, you know, he wanted me to come back in a couple of months later. And so I just brought in lots of the research that I've been doing and just saying, did you know, you know, did you know this? Did you know that? Um, did you know, like I told you about the surgeons earlier, being mm -hmm. half as effective at their job and lives being at risk. The same is true of lorry drivers. Um, uh, you know, little moments like, uh, if you're on the roads of America, the people that you have to avoid at all costs are people who have bumper stickers on their cars, um, because they are personalizing their cars. They don't think of them as, as objects getting from one place to another. They think of them, uh, as an extension of their home. And so if you cut up that person on the road, they are far more offended and they're much more likely to get their gun out and shoot you. Well, wow, that's so interesting. So the more of, it's true. It's very, it's very kind of odd. We're very territorial. Yeah. Um, but we tend to, you know, on the roads, um, yeah, the more bumper stickers they have, even if those bumper stickers say, you know, um, I think animals are terrific and, um, I own a panda. Right. Um, it doesn't matter. Um, they, it's the, it's the act of personalizing their car that means they're more likely to be, uh, road ragers and road ragers tend to be the same people who get very, very angry at their own children's sporting events. So all those kind of people that you frown upon, um, you know, the people who are just like shouting at children who aren't at professional level when they're playing football at seven years old, um, tend to be the people who would, uh, be more likely to shoot you on the road. That's lovely. So, yeah. um, uh, yeah, you know, I brought in lots of facts like this and, 
and talk around it. And then he trusts me to go away and uh, turn it into something, you know. And how long did it take you to do? I would say uh, to make a decent job of it and to think. There's a lot of thinking involved. It was it was sort of like nine, ten months to a year, something like that. Right. Um, from from not being served a hot dog uh, to to serving a book. Right. I want to ask you one more su- one more subject real quick, which I which I did not know going into this book, which is back a little more than a decade sure. ago. You were the author of Yes Man, which became the Jim Carrey movie Yes Man. I've always been fascinated by high concepts and and, um, and what ifs, mm-hmm. and I think where a what if becomes yeah, you know even stronger is when it becomes like a what then. Um, and with Yes Man, I'd 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 been I'd kind of been saying no a lot. Um, I'd, I'd had a, a year of adventure the year before where I'd, I'd essentially started my own cult. Um, I, I wanted to see if I could. Um, and I wanted to see whether people would join something without knowing who they were joining or what they were joining, uh, or even what joining meant. And it turns out thousands of people wanted to join something, even though they didn't know what it was. And, and I became the leader of this thing. And so that year had been quite big. And then I sort of went into myself a bit and I wasn't like, I wasn't depressed in any way. I was just um, quite satisfied not going out mm-hmm. and not doing stuff. Um, and I, I slowly began to realize that that wasn't the healthiest thing in the world because I was getting asked to do stuff and go out and have fun. And, you know, they could say, do you want to come to this brilliant gig? It's going to be amazing. These people are going to be there. And then we're all off to this other place. And I would immediately have my excuse before I'd even heard what it was. I just go, I can't. I can't. I'm. I've got. I've got a thing. A thing I need to do, and that's not good when you instinctively um, are turning stuff down and 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 sort of fibbing to people. Um, so I thought the best way to counteract that uh, would be to do the opposite and to say yes, where I would have said no, no because I was bored or I couldn't be bothered or I was tired or any of those excuses that you give yourself and you allow yourself. Um, so I thought I'm just going to, I'm just going to be full on energetic and, and I'm going to be, I'm going to say yes, I'm going to be a yes man. And, um, so that's what I did. And, and, you know, um, some days nothing happened and some days, you know, insane things happened and fun things and crazy things. And, uh, and soon enough, um, I'd, um, written it up and done a book about it and um and then they wanted to make a film out of it and it was going to be a jack black film and i was like that's brilliant um and then uh and then jim carrey said he wanted to do it and so uh i i guess i don't know how that conversation went but i guess the studio uh gave jack the elbow and gave it to jim carrey and um and then yeah cut a long story short then i'm suddenly on a set with him saying this is a bit like liar liar i feel like i uh I could, I hate to say this, I could probably confuse about seven. I love The Cable Guy. I consider The Cable Guy <laughs> one of the great movies of all time, but otherwise. Cable Guy's amazing. Yeah, very yeah, underrated. Totally. Um, is it weird when you're, is it weird that you, when you write a book? So I've had a bunch of my books optioned, and I remember the first time I had a book optioned, and they gave yeah. me like whatever, $15,000. And I was like, $15,000 is amazing. And my book is going to be a movie? This is amazing. And yeah. um, of course, I've never had a book become a movie. <laughs> yeah. But everyone has told me how great it is, and yeah. they know Denzel is going to be great for this role. <laughs> what is it like when your book actually becomes? Is it is it more of the great, or is it more of the? Well, this isn't my book. You 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 have to listen. I'm I've, I'm always very kind of philosophical about these things, and and 
uh, I, I'd had uh, a book optioned before Yes Man, and and that seemed like it was going to go somewhere, and I had the exact same thing as you were talking about, and then it didn't, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and great people involved, uh, all good intentions, uh, but just didn't didn't happen. Um, then when when Yes Man uh, happened, it happened very quickly, and um, it it picked up a kind of a head of steam, and then it suddenly seemed like this is definitely going to happen. So in a sense, that also um, uh, confuses things because now that it has happened, you think, you know, any time uh, yeah. after that with with a book that's optioned, you're like, oh, well, it's got a good chance then, you know, because of, because of the yes man thing. And of course, you just kind of go back to square one. Um, it's everything lives or dies by the people involved, by the timing uh, and all the rest of it. And in terms of uh, what you say about um, them making changes and so on, um, quite a few readers over the years have been furious um that you know it's been reset in america and the guy has a different job and um you know blah 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 but i always just go look you're annoyed because the book has changed a bit but that's because you like the book and the book hasn't changed the book remains the same the thing you like is the thing you still own you don't even have to buy it again it's right there just read it right um uh and a film is a completely different thing you know uh, the uh, the book yes man um i mean when i wrote it i was um 25 or 6 and i was living in a, a dodgy area of east london quite near um a not very good supermarket and i would get the bus uh into work um that that's not enough for a hollywood blockbuster you know no one's going to go to watch that but if you get jim carrey involved and you reset it in America, and you heighten it a bit, they're going to go and see it. And the second Jim Carrey was involved, I realized it was no longer um, a Danny Wallace book. It was now a Jim Carrey film. Right. So, so long as they had some of the same things in place, the the magic of the everyday, the the positivity of the idea, uh, the spirit of it, um, I was I was uh, I was I was happy. I mean, the beats of the book match the beats of the film. The basics of the friendships and the love story and so on are, are kind of all in there. Um, it's the cosmetics that have changed. But those are the things that people far better than me at, you know, bringing films to life, um, have to do. So, so it's weird. Um, but it's also, it's kind of cool. And they, they kept me involved and they sent me scripts and they bring me over. So, I mean, I had a wonderful time. Listen, Danny, I am, uh, seriously, I, I, it's a great book. Like it's really great. It's like it's the odd, the odd merging of fun and educational, um, which is not as easy as one thing. Oh, well, so, I'm, ple- I'm so pleased you liked it. Yeah, it was yeah, great. Well, I'm, I'm really glad you liked it. Yeah, and thanks for uh, thanks for appearing on the podcast, and uh, I appreciate it very much. I really do. I want to thank today's guest, Danny Wallace, for joining me on Two Riders Slinging Yang. You can follow Danny on Twitter at Danny Wallace and buy F you very much pretty much everywhere. The podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, king of the throwback sports merchandise. Visit the website at www.503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Riders Slinging Yang on iTunes and reviews are always appreciated. Music is from the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me and remember, keep writing. Редактор